Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today, we are going to be discussing the next installment in our remedial read-along, the Discworld novel Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Hannah. It's been a bit of a time in the fortnight since we have spoken to you, but we are still here. <laughs> we will be that anchor in your lives that you so clearly need us to be. Right. It's nice to just take an hour or so and talk to someone about, you know, a book and not, like, my work schedule or something. So it's a good time. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like three days out from when all my everything for my master's degree is due. So that's the headspace I'm in. But we're here. And it's, I agree, it's nice to have a place. Where we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yes. But in order to not worry about that, we have to talk about things. So um, I will go ahead and do the summary. That sounds good. Okay. I will warn you guys, I cried several times while reading this book, so that is also the headspace I'm going to be in as we proceed. That is not new for me on this show. <laughs> so Nightwatch uh, centers almost more so than usual on... Sam Vimes, the commander of the City Watch of Ankh-Morpork, he is caught in a magical storm while pursuing a notorious criminal named Carcer, and they both get pulled into this almost like, they call it something specific in the book because Terry Pratchett's good at world building, but um, it's basically like a time storm where they get pulled back 30 years in the past, and Vimes wakes up. And he knows something is wrong because he recognizes this person. Or no, he doesn't recognize the woman at first, but he knows in the future that she's going to be the head of the Guild of Seamstresses. Seamstresses referring politely to prostitutes. Um, But it is not really until he's like, I need to go home, I need to go home, because in the future, present... Sybil is, um, his wife is having their first baby. He's like, I need, I need to go. I need to go home. But he goes to the place that is his home in the future, and Sybil is 16 years old. Obviously, her parents are like, who is this 40-something-year-old guy who said he's (laughs) our daughter's husband? That's not something that's gonna, that dog's not gonna hunt. So he ends up being taken to jail, essentially. Because he tries to go ask the wizards at Unseen University to send him home, but he is arrested for breaking curfew by a younger, freshly minted policeman version of himself. And in true time travel happenstance, is incarcerated next to Carcer, who it is revealed has been offered a job with the secret police who are charged with carrying out the um, very paranoid whims of the current patrician who is a man named lord winder however when vimes is taken to be interrogated he is met by um a monk named i am going to mispronounce this like an idiot white person lutze who tells vimes basically what has happened he has to assume the identity of this sergeant at arms named john keel who was supposed to have arrived that day but was murdered by carcer and it was this event that caused them to be sent into the past. Vimes then returns to the office, times restarts, and he he has to convince the captain of 
the city watch that he is Kiel. He does this and becomes, in a weird roundabout way, his own mentor, which is um, a relationship that really kind of holds a lot of the book together. The novel climaxes in something that is foreshadowed at the very beginning of the book, because there's um, a whole sequence in the beginning where all the policemen talk about wearing, picking and wearing lilacs. And we learn that it was actually the anniversary of this glorious revolution of the 25th of May, I believe. That causes a kind of interesting narrative point, because we as the reader and Sam Vimes know this revolution is going to be the climax of the novel, essentially. Obviously, Vimes doesn't know he's in a novel, but you know what I mean. But he has to work towards that. It is, it is impressed upon him that he cannot change this. History will find a way, as it is explained to him. But um, over the course of the book, Vimes is tasked with teaching Sam, as he calls him, young Sam, the lessons for which Vimes would later idolize Keel. In a way, has to sort of become his own hero, which is a point that I want to talk about later. But he has to take command of the Watchmen. He has to avoid this huge, riotous bloodshed. I saw in a few reviews, it is, the way it's described is very similar to Bloody Sunday during the Irish Troubles. And this bloodshed that sort of erupted all over the city. And he manages to keep his part of the world relatively peaceful. Uh, however, over the course of this evening, where he is trying to keep his little piece of the world under control, Vimes has to deal with haphazard forces. They have to find out where the Unmentionables headquarters is. Turns out it's in the barricade that they've built. They find out, I think it is insinuated that he, he kind of knew, but the younger Vimes and a lot of the people he brings with him, because they're like, kids essentially a lot of these young officers he finds that the unmentionables have essentially been taking and torturing people in very horrific fashion it's very spanish inquisition and not in the monty python way but they gradually sort of push these barricades forward to encompass i think at some point it's almost a quarter of the city and they call it the Glorious People's Republic of Treacle Mine Road. <laughs> and we get to meet Reg Shu, who is an undead officer in uh, the previous book, The Fifth Elephant, while he is still alive. But there is a subplot at work, as there always is in Discworld novels, where we meet a young Assassin's Guild student, Havelock Vedinari, who assassinates Lord Winder in a way... That is foreshadowed by some irony when Lord Winder is basically says, who are you? Vetinari is like, you could, you could say I'm your future. <laughs> In a weird double entendre uh. that he doesn't even really understand. But we do. However, the new Lord Snapcase, who has been talked about briefly throughout the course of the book, a lot of the younger people support him because he's very much, he's like every kind of, that particular breed of, like, empty progressive politician who goes out and shakes hands and tries to make people believe he's of the people, but really he's, he's, he's just like everybody else. But he's calling for complete amnesty and he's talking about all this stuff. However, he sees Keel, who we know is Vimes, as a threat and sends essentially SEAL Team 6 to go deal with him. 
However, there are still several policemen, the ones who died when this barricade fell in this original timeline that is spoken about in the beginning of the book. And Red Shoe dies in a very glory-filled thing. I I got very emotional, weirdly, when Red Shoe died, even though he has to die to become undead. Vimes manages to fight off this attack until he can grab Carcer, at which point they are returned to the future. Keel's body is placed in the timeline Vimes just left, as if he had been there the whole time, to promote this history that Keel was there the whole time and he was the one that died in the fight. When we return to the future, Vimes' son has been born. Vimes finally arrests Carcer before vehemently promising him a fair trial before he is hanged. (laughs) And as in most City Watch books, there's the final culmination conversation with Lord Vetinari. The sort of debrief at the end of the the book that is, I thought was, was very powerful because... Vetinari, it is it is revealed throughout the course of the conversation that not enough change happened where he doesn't know Vimes. He knows that Vimes was there. And that Vimes was Keel. Which is a very Vetinari thing where it's like, history? I don't care. <laughs> it is revealed that he's the only person who remembers. That Vimes took Keel's place, that he fought aside these people against the death squads. And they end, he ends up proposing that this old watch house where Keel and then subsequently Vimes was the sergeant at arms in the People's Republic of Treacle Mine Road <laughs> that was originally destroyed is going to be rebuilt. And there's a very intense moment where Veterinari, as in a way that I think he views as an olive branch says, well, maybe it can be a memorial to these young men who died and Vimes is just like, is that what you think they'd want? Uh, This book, and this might be a good jumping off point for this, because it does end in a not quite happily ever after, but nothing is worse. <laughs> I think that I think that that's, a, that's an interesting distinction Terry Pratchett makes in a lot of his books. It is not necessarily better, but it isn't any worse. And I think in the context of the overall narrative of this book, that is kind of a happy ending. Where he does get to go home, even if he had to relive all this horrific trauma and he still has to, like, know that his younger self had to go through all the shit to be him. Mm-hmm. He gets to go back to being him and he's not stuck and he gets to move into that brighter future. He's got to work for it, though. <laughs> right. There's so many points in that book where he starts to say something about like getting dwarves or trolls on the force and everyone is like incredibly racist about it and he's like oh wait (laughs) i'm 30 years in the past we can't talk about dwarves or trolls like that yet because he's he's constantly kind of going back and forth in his head about well, how would I handle this when he's planning for what the police, the soldiers, essentially, they they bring out the fucking National Guard, basically, <laughs> to deal with these people. And he is like, well, how would I do this? And he's like, well, I would just tell people, I would just, basically, I think he says, I would just say really loudly, detritus, take down that barricade. And he wouldn't even have to do anything. People would be like, oh, no, we're leaving. <laughs> but he can't do that. He's got to, he, he has to work with what he's got. And that is something that is sometimes played for laughs because we get just the the stunning and 
competence that we were introduced to in Guards Guards mm-hmm. of some of these people. But we get to meet younger versions of them. Like we get to meet Fred Fred Colon, who is a who I think is another brand new officer. We get to meet Nobby, who's who's a kid, essentially. <laughs> and he he's like he's like a like an artful dodger character going through the city and collecting pennies to spy on people. And then there's Sam Vimes himself, young Sam Vimes, who is still this very idealistic young man. And I think that is what hurts Vimes the most, looking back at him. And he goes out of his way several times in the book to keep Sam Vimes out of danger. Not necessarily for timeline reasons, but because he he knows he's he's going to have enough. <laughs> he doesn't need this. Yeah. And I think that is something people can relate to. I can relate to that, I think. That weird existential crisis you would have at having to go back and be there for your younger self in a time of great shift and trauma. Yeah. Is, is like, I'm like, why, why would you do this, Terry? Why would you do this <laughs> to me? I don't need it. Right. I think I've talked about that before, too, where I have this desire to just go back and be very kind to 12-year-old me because 12-year-old me was not very kind to 12-year-old me. Yeah. Um, And that's not exactly what's going on here, but it's similar, right? That the idea of, like, was I ever that young? I was, and it was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like for me, I t- I've talked about this every once in a while, but for me, like, that period of my life, it's sort of what Vimes is, is talking about here. Like, that period of my life is probably when I was around 18 to 21. Like, those three years of my life, I remember shit was not great. You know, you get through it and it, and it helps you be the person that you are today. But, like, the idea of having to go back and be the person that that version of me needed is something that I don't, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. In the book, he doesn't have a choice, mostly because for like history reasons, but also because he's he's Vimes, and he's not gonna just not do it, right? And that is a, another very emotional moment in the book, where even though he knows like he's John Keel and John Keel died, even though he knows that that's a possibility, like he's not just gonna not help. Right. We talked about this in the in the production meeting. We've talked about this, I think, in every City Watch episode that we've done. The prolific Patrick Rothfuss and his amazing review of Guards, Guards on Goodreads. Um, but it was that observation he made where, like, Vimes' story is the fall from grace in, in reverse. You know, he starts in the gutter, and he could have died there, and he doesn't. This book, as you, as you prophesied to me many years ago... <laughs> is really a, a a big culmination of that character arc of him finding who he is and finding what he believes not in a way that takes him back to when he was young and he was very idealistic and he just kind of he kind of just believed everything that was told to him yeah in some way in a way that I think is kind of normal if you're that age like you're just kind of looking for what you think the rest of your life is going to be because the rest of your life feels like a very long time when you're that age and it is a very long time 
but I, I was talking about this with somebody, like, when I was 19, the idea that I would ever be closer to 30 than 20 was fake news. <laughs> I was like, that's not a real age. What are you talking about? Uh. <laughs> but, you know, it just feels, it feels so far away. And then you're there. Yeah. <laughs> There's a specific quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the, the gist of it is, you know, that's the dream that you go back and you're like, oh, I wish I had known then what I know now. But you're not the same person. <laughs> like, you then is a twerp. <laughs> and part of getting on the road to who you are now is being a twerp. And that's just how it is. And like most wonderful big ideas in Terry Pratchett books, it is both funny and true. Like, you have to be kind of an idiot and you have to flounder for a while because that's what, like, being that age is. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get where you're going without some, you know, some work being done. Like, you're not born fully fledged into a good person. Mm -hmm. You gotta work at it. It does take work. So, I don't know. I think that's sort of like, you can't, you can't take shortcuts or you won't be that person. I think we see a little bit of that. And Vimes does have to help himself be a better person. It's really interesting the way that time travel works in this book. And we might talk about it in a little bit, but mm -hmm. he he does have to kind of point himself, his younger self, in the right direction. You know, he has to teach him that in the job that you're in, you have to be better than people are expected to normally be like you can't take bribes you can't you can't abuse people in police custody <laughs> you know you can't do all these things that the watch had been doing i think you get a sense of like how much vimes really accomplished and the strength of his character not and we know his character he's a really strong person because People try to exploit his alcoholism, and he just deals with that. I think Sybil helps a lot. Yeah. And she helps a lot in this book, too, which is very sweet. Yeah, it was very wholesome in some ways. <laughs> I, I remember I was in the car, because I, I listened to the book like I listened to most of the books that we go through for this show. And I was driving somewhere and I got to the part of the book where he realizes that he can't lean on her because she's not his Sybil, essentially. There's a few moments where that weight of being so alone in a way that is almost un unthinkable to a lot of people in, in the way that he, he is alone, like he is he is the stranger in the strange land essentially and he can't really be himself to a lot of people and just the weight of that overtakes him a couple times in the book and it's rough it is it is real rough and i i think one of the things i really like about this book that felt appropriate for the tone terry pratchett was going for we talk a lot about how terry pratchett's not jolly he's angry a lot more anger than jolliness comes out in this book in a way that is, 
I don't think the book would be as successful if it didn't. Yeah, there's a lot of heavy themes in this book. You've got, like, the idea of the beast and what it means to kind of be a man of the law and what you have to live with in order to do that. You have the idea of, like, revolution and what are the driving factors in revolution and what revolutions actually, in a practical sense, are, which is a lot of civilians get killed. Yeah. Like, realistically speaking. And you have this idea of, like, ethics in policing, (laughs) which is a very specific theme. And you also have the idea of, like, don't militarize your police force and, like, whose side the police should really be on. And that gets made a huge deal out of. And you also have this sort of, like, weird tension between the Watch and the Patricians' force, which are called the Particulars, but everyone colloquially calls them the Unmentionables. And... There's that there's that tension between men of the people and men of the ruler. I'm not even going to say the government, because the watch is sworn to protect and serve the people, not the even the law, necessarily. Yeah, I think this book, um, most of the City Watch books are, but this book especially, is a really good meditation on what it means to be lawful, because it really kind of comes to a head vimes enacts several plot points in this book where he basically says if the law is unlawful you don't have to follow it (laughs) it is almost it is your duty not to follow it as a police officer who is sworn to protect the people once you buy into the idea that you are an enemy of the people rather than a protector it's over yeah and and a lot of that has to do with the militarization of the police and like who do you really answer to? And that is that's a question I think that has been struggled with nigh on centuries because it is the whole idea of if you're a police officer you have to be of some kind of authority but what grants you that authority? And that is a question that Vime struggles with where there's one specific moment where he's talking and he's like kind of looking around him and at all these these people who, in a very good for self-preservation way, don't want to follow him, even if it's the right thing to do, because they know what's going to happen. And he kind of thinks back and he's like, how did I ever get to a point where we could arrest the patrician <laughs> without being run out of town, essentially? The whole book takes us back to a time that is hinted at throughout the City Watch series, but we never really get to see it in all of the the muck and glory that Vimes got to when he was a kid of what it was like before Vimes was Vimes and before he kind of kind of stood up and said this far and no further and and changed things. And I think that's a revelation even for him in the book. Because I think it's one of those things, if you, if it's happening to you, and you're going through it in the regular process of time, you don't notice the really big changes until you get sent back to a time when they haven't been in- enacted yet. Right. 
I think that's the the big character driving force in this book that kind of builds off of something we saw in Fifth, Ele- Fifth Elephant, in, but it, on a different axis almost. How does this protagonist respond when taken out of their setting? And in The Fifth Elephant, that was like, well, he's the Duke of Ankh-Morpork now. He's not really the commander of the Night Watch, of the City Watch. He's this noble guy and you have to act within that sphere in this it's almost like he has to go even further backwards (laughs) and be like okay well now i'm a sergeant at arms i can deal with that but it's within this organization that he has tried so hard to make better and it's back at the beginning yeah (laughs) and you have to work within all these rules and laws that are stupid and corrupt and just, I cannot imagine the, the, the fortitude required to go into this knowing you are A, going to lose, and B, you might not get to go home again. Yeah. But one thing I did want to touch on, maybe before we get into the time travel part of it, is the idea that in order to be the person he becomes... Vimes has to be his own hero and his own mentor because um, it is explained to us throughout the book that John Keel was sort of the person who took Vimes under his wing when he was became a, a police officer. He died in the Glorious Revolution and he was like, he was a hero. Vimes is faced with the reality that he has to be that person for himself. And that, I think, kind of ties into something you touched on, where it's it's that impulse to be like, I want to go back and be kind to myself because I wasn't kind to myself. I wasn't or didn't have the person I needed when I needed somebody. I think that's the part of the book, the, like the aspect of the, of the novel that gets me so emotional because I think that's relatable, is Vimes gets an opportunity to do that. And to be that. Until we invent stable time travel, whether by magic or other <laughs> means, we we won't get that. You don't get that. You don't get to go back and be the person you needed. And he does. And he does it well. And there's something so almost like vindication about that. Especially if we followed him from guards, guards, where if we had if you had thrown him back from that time maybe even in men at arms he wouldn't have done it yeah he wouldn't have pulled it off and it's only from going through all that shit (laughs) and getting dragged through life getting chewed up and spit back out that he's able to to, in some ways protect his younger self from that yeah in a way that is far long reaching than just being like you shouldn't be a bully's officer you should do something else because it is i think i think I don't know if it's really discussed in the book. I don't remember it being, but I think at some point, Vimes, beyond the history will find a way thing, I think you have to accept or decide that the bullshit was worth it. Yeah. And I think he does. I mean, that's, there's a big moment in the book. The monks, he's, he's like losing it. He's about to (laughs) snap. And the monks, when he came in, he lost the silver cigarette or cigar case that Sybil had given him and he just keeps 
looking for it. He keeps, like, patting his breast pocket to get it out, and it's not there. And it's, like, it's like he has a phantom limb, but it's this cigar yeah. case. And he's about to lose it. He he has had enough. He cannot do it. He knows what's coming next. It's not good. And the monks find this cigar case so that he has a piece of the future to hold on to. And I think that was part of what made the book so... Like, that was the wholesomeness of the book, right? And and the civil thing is that he needed that assurance that it would be worth it if he pulled it off. That there was something to go back to. Yeah, because um, in the lead up to that, there was that whole conversation where he basically asked, is there anything waiting for me now? It's almost heartbreaking to think about because Terry Patchett does a, does a really good job of sort of describing that internal panic that anyone who's ever had a panic attack will understand <laughs> where to the outside world that might seem stupid to be that upset over a silver cigar case but they talk a lot about the difference between being tossed on the waves of history and being a ship sailing through a storm and how vimes needs the anchor that is that cigar case because it's something that reminds him that there is something waiting for him in the future. Both in the immediate, I'm getting the fuck out of here sense. <laughs> and there is something waiting for young Sam Vimes in the future. Like, he will still become who he worked so hard to be. That is unchangeable in some ways. That also kind of got me yeah, in, in, an, in a different <laughs> way. Because I think a lot of us... A lot. I think everybody has something in their life that has happened, that has influenced you, or made you into who you are in in a good way or a bad way or a, or an in between way. And I think sometimes I have that anxiety where you either worry, "Is this who I'm really supposed to be?" or "Could something have been better or worse?" And I think for Vimes, his big fear is, "Could it have been worse?" Yeah. Could I have actually died in that gutter and just, like, spent my whole life looking at the bottom of a bottle? Like, could that have happened? And I think having that reassurance that his journey was not for nothing is something that, like, kind of, like, got me. Like, because <laughs> we've been following this dude for six books. Like, you get attached to people. I think that's, like, the point of so many... This series and and it is weirdly it's incredibly difficult to pull off where you can have this big long extended story and maintain that connection yeah to the protagonist i think we feel that with a lot of people throughout like i i felt that way there was an excellent moment in the the, the witches series which is my second favorite where granny weatherwax talks about every woman is is many women and you have to decide which pieces of yourself you want to make the whole person that is you. Where are you the young woman who's waiting on the bridge for her man? Are you stuck at a crossroads? Are you going to say stay stuck? Or are you going to make yourself a full person? And Gr Granny Weatherwax kind of has to figure out who she is and what pieces of all these different people she's been in her life she's going to take with her into the, her future to make herself this full person. And I think that is a similar 
moment to Vimes figuring out this is who I am. This is who I'm supposed to be. I'm going to do what I can to make sure I stay this person. Because it's worth it. Even with all the bullshit. Even with all the crap he still goes through. This man does not have an easy life. But it is better. Or at the very least, it's not any worse. And um, that's an interesting distinction, I think, Terry Pratchett makes really well in a lot of his books. It's the whole thing of interrogating the idea of a happy ending. And why sometimes a happy ending isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. Like he had, he had a really good interview, I think, about this book in particular, where he talks about the difference between having something not be any worse, which in some ways is the best case scenario, and having everything be perfect at the end. Because it's a Discworld book. Nothing is going to be perfect at, at the end. That is not Terry Pratchett's style. That is not the kind of fantasy that he writes. That's just not a thing. He straddles, I think, a really good line between tying everything up nice and neat at the end and having everything be kind of grimdark. I think the reason a lot of people kind of polarize on that spectrum is because both of those ends are much easier to write right? than being in the middle. That is 100% true. No, I would just say that, like, that reminds me of this quote and I can't find a good source for it because it's been lost in the Tumblr miasma mm. of reblogs and reposting. Yes. Which is unfortunate. Stop doing that, guys. But there's it's like a haiku. It's not a hi- it's not even a haiku. It says it's a haiku. I'm getting off track. The point <laughs> is there's this quote and it's I can't abandon who I used to be, so I carry her. Mm, I'm in pain. <laughs> but that kind of is what happens in this in this book when Sam Vimes travels back in time. Like he can't abandon the person he used to be, so he carries that with him. I think he carries um a lot with him over the course of the book. I mentioned this in the intro, but we meet Red Red Shoe. In an earlier book where he is an undead, I think he's a corporal, I want to say. It doesn't matter. He, he, he's, he's a watchman. But he, um, we meet him when he's alive, and he has no fucking clue who, who Vimes is. I did enjoy over the course of the book, Vimes stopped caring about that. <laughs> and he would just be like, I'm calling you by your name and you're doing what I say. <laughs> and people just kind of went with it. But Red Shoe kind of dying and being it was very Boromir he was just peppered with all these arrows and he still kind of kept going was sort of like this flashbulb image in my mind of him like going out to meet all these people who are trying to break through the barricade all these all these unmentionables even though like you know he has to die at some point because he doesn't really look any different other than obviously the main aspects of being undead It's a rare moment of just, like, things are very serious, but it also just kind of ties a smaller plot together in a very neat way that is almost uncharacteristic of a lot of Pratchett's writing. But there is an internal sense to things that I think kind of comes out in in this book. 
um, we talked about this in the production meeting. One of the weird in inversions of this book is the the comic relief plot centers on Veninari, <laughs> which is not what happens in most of the other books. The exception, I would say, is Jingo. Oh, that's one hundred percent true. Because he it's 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 like him, Nobby, Colon, and I feel like one other person. Leonard of Quirm. Leonard of Quirm. Um, and they they have to go and like I don't even remember, but I think that was when they're like, "What do you mean he's competent at other things?" <laughs> oh, right. In a really scary way, <laughs> he can juggle very threateningly. I believe. he can juggle very threateningly. He's a master assassin, in a way that is very disconcerting to all of his teachers. Like, there's a whole exchange he has with his aunt where he talks about how he failed a class because the teacher, it, it, the teacher says he never showed up, but it was like a stealth class. So he's like, how would he know that I wasn't there? <laughs> and for all we know, he just didn't go to the class. But like, it is insinuated that he's like, they can't prove I wasn't there. Maybe I was just really good. <laughs> But yeah, we learn a little bit more about the Assassin's Guild in this book, which I thought was very fun because it's mentioned several times that he was trained at the Assassin's Guild before he became the patrician. But I I did the whole like beginning of the book. I'm like, if we don't meet shithead teenage college student Havelock Fedenari, I'm I'm not finishing this book, Terry. That's not true. But I I would have been <laughs> tempted. Yeah, I, it does really tie it off because we see a lot of these characters who we know that there's this long history and we we get to experience it firsthand in this book and it's it's done through the mechanism of time travel rather than a flashback yeah i think that's very good because these books are very present tense typically like there's not a lot of flashbacking in in the discworld novel so I also really like the time travel in this book. Like, it really worked for me. I struggle a lot with time travel science fiction because I find it confusing and unnecessarily complicated. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of time travel can be very convoluted. And I like that this was pretty simple. I liked the idea that even though Vimes had to had to do things it was really just like this sequence of events has to happen whether you do it or not yeah may not matter but this this sequence of events will happen right the idea is that there's one when vimes gets sent back in time there is one past one future and two presents So it's like you have a stream that branches off into two sections and then comes back together. And that was a very easy way for me to understand it. And then basically this bifurcation of time and rejoining of time is only stable for so long. So Vimes is sort of on the clock. Yeah. They have to find a way to get everything to come back together so that it's stable enough they can send him back to the future. So, like, there's a lot riding on this this revolution essentially failing a second time. 
whether Vimes likes it or not. And it does. And I also want to say I love the Time Monks. Yes. They're in a couple other books. And I love that the complicatedness of time travel gets waved away as like, it's all quantum. It's not, I can't explain this to you right now. Because I'm like, thank you. I didn't really want you to. Right? I love that 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 is the the choice Terry Pratchett makes. Because I think there's really like two schools of world building when it comes to time travel. You either have to explain everything and it's way convoluted and it either makes sense or it doesn't or it's magic. (laughs) And it just happens. It's all quantum. And I'm just like, okay, I'm good with that. I feel like you really kind of have to go to one or the other. And I like that Pratchett kind of, because that is very Discworld, just kind of be like, well, it is what it is. It's a thing that happens. I do like that there are consequences for, like, not doing things correctly while you're in the past, because I think that's an important tension that gets introduced by time travel. And if you don't address that when you introduce the time travel trope, then you have not implemented the time travel trope correctly i'm sorry i don't make the rules so like there's enough of like hand waving away the complicatedness while addressing the fact that when you travel back in time like there are implications for that for the plot you can't just go back and forth like i don't like that either like i don't want to be too complicated but it needs to have some kind of internal logic so i think this is a good balance Yeah, there has to be consequence. One thing I did want to ask you about, because I have not read or watched any Les Mis, is how do you feel about this book and Les Mis? Like, is there a lot Hmm. of Les Mis in this book? I don't know. I thought there was a lot of Les Mis, but all I know about Les Mis is barricades, unsuccessful... (laughs) revolution by the proletariat and a bunch of young pretty men die tragically i think there's um some through lines definitely i think the idea of there being like a revolution that stems from youth even if it is doomed to fail i think that is definitely something that's in this book i think they ask similar questions about the catalysts and results of revolutions And Jean Valjean is also a character that kind of sticks around and in some cases literally carries a young man to safety so he can live the rest of his life. So I I think in some way there are a lot of parallels. I I think I would would agree with that. Um, I also think, as I did a little bit more research into some of the parallels between the events of the book and the on the Irish Revolution of last mm-hmm. century. I think there is a lot of very purposeful parallels there. If especially when we think about this is way too long to go into. But if we <laughs> think about how the British government treated Ireland for a very long time, I think there there are some through lines there. I think it, it is a mix between fictional tropes that are, I agree, very, very prevalent and in a lot of our cultural consciousness sort of originate most strongly in Les Mis. I think that is a fair point. I do think, though, in true Terry Pratchett fashion, it might be mixed with more historical takes. 
Because I was like, there's a, like an ornery street urchin. So Nobby's the ornery street he urchin. Is. There's a lot of street urchins in European literature. But yeah, Nobby being the... Um, he did not die tragically, though. So he, is, he is not quite garage. I, I think that's a good take. Because <laughs> there's always something being borrowed from in a lot of Discworld. It, it is made new. But I think Pratchett does a great job of borrowing in a way. In a way that never feels quite like cheating. Right. <laughs> Which is is a talent. I have read some various YA fairy tale retellings where I'm just kind of like, mm. um... <laughs> you leaned pretty heavy, didn't you? But, um, I mean, and I've also read some really good ones. I think another example of someone who borrows heavily is um, Marissa Myers. I love Marissa Myers' books. The Lunar Chronicles. Like, there's enough borrowing, but it's not a straight retelling, and I appreciate that. I 100% agree with that. Marissa Myers is a very, very good example of that. Please read The Lunar Chronicles. It's so good. I'm about to read Cress, which I'm excited for because I think that's the character that you told me one time that I'm like, this character reminds me of you a lot. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to feel yes, about that. <laughs> Cress is the one that reminds me of you the most, I think, from 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 all the books. In a good way. I wanna just wanna say that. It's a good way. <laughs> well, y'all, if we don't do the podcast again, you know what happened. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. no I'm, ki- I'm kidding. <laughs> I could never be mad at you about something like that. <laughs> so I have to ask, now that we're toward the end of our recording time-ish, uh-huh. did it live up to the hype that I set up I think for it you? did. I really think it did. And and it is interesting to me, as, as I go through a lot of the Wikipedia articles for these, just so I can make sure I didn't miss anything for the plot and stuff, it is interesting how many Discworld books there was a big big public survey in Great Britain a few years ago called The Big Read where they basically had this huge long list it was like 200 to 250 books of like the most beloved books and there are so many Discworld books on there (laughs) but this one I think there were three books that really stood out they were all really close together Near, like, I think the highest was Mort, which was 63rd. But Nightwatch, I think, was, like, 73rd or something. Like, And there was a book in between them. But it was, like, of all the City Watch books, it was the highest. And I think that makes sense, even if you have to read the rest of the City Watch books to really get the impact of it. I think it is the climax you described to me low these many years ago (laughs) because i remember being like i was kind of confused as to how discworld worked like how you were supposed to read it there really is no real way you're supposed to read it i guess like there's you can be like me and mostly go publication order but for the i've sort of shifted towards just doing full storylines now because it's easier and you were like no night watch is the best one and i was like so can I can I just read that? And you were like, no, no, you cannot. You have to read the other ones. And I think it definitely lived up to the hype. It was, I felt something deeply satisfying when I finished it. 
Yeah, it's a culmination. It is. It's it's a culmination. There are people on Goodreads telling people that you can start anywhere in the series, and I am here to tell you, stop that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's... I mean, can you technically... Yes, I mean, you, technically, you don't have to read any series in order. There's no laws, but... Like... Yeah, we're not gonna, like, we're, we cannot come to your house and stop you. Right. But I think that so much of what makes this book so impactful is knowing the rest of the story. Yeah. Discworld is a lot more flexible than a lot of other series in terms of of reading order. That is true. But at the same time, like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you can read Shepherd's Crown whenever you feel like it. Like, that... (laughs) That's the last one you should read. I'm like there are just things that I think for the optimal reading experience need to happen a certain way. Yeah, I I agree with that because I I think the point a lot of people make, and I think there is some validity to this to some extent, mostly in the you don't have to start with the color of magic thing. Terry Pratchett got better as the series went on, like. Um, I think a lot of authors, too, because he was relatively young when he published the first one, compared to how old he was when he died, if I remember I correctly. mean, how could you not writing that much? Oh my god, I know. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, this book, Nightwatch, it's the 29th book. 29. He was publishing, like, one or two a year. Which is insane. For the longest time. Occasionally three. Like, it's it's crazy. While doing other stuff. Sometimes. Like, it's it's crazy to me. I think it is, even if you want to be like, well, I want to read the best of the best or whatever, that's whatever. But I think it is most satisfying to start at the beginning of a series like The City Watch, like Witches, or the, which are the two that I've read the most of, even Death to some extent. Because, like, Mort's a great book. Reaper Man fucked up my whole shit. <laughs> but it's the whole thing of begin at the beginning. And these, the big moments, the climaxes, like Nightwatch, it will feel so much more satisfying when you get there. Yeah. Shall we do our final thoughts and and see how we're feeling? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that the prophecy has been fulfilled. <laughs> yes. And peace has descended on the land. And I have to give my first daughter's hand in marriage. How did it what? We, we figured this out, like, four years ago, but it was a thing that happened. My big final thought, because we didn't get a chance to touch on it much, because there is a lot to talk about with this book. Like, most of the City Watch books and, like, several of the Death books, even, they talk about this in Hogfather a lot. There's a, a, a discussion to be had throughout the course of the book about concepts like freedom, truth, and justice, and things like that, and how... And when do you believe in those things as when you see how little of that is innate in the world? I really appreciated the end of the book where all Vimes wants is to make sure Carcer gets a trial. Right. He wants it above board. He wants it on the books that this guy deserved this and that it isn't just him. And that is hard that is so difficult 
even as a person who has learned to work within the system the way Vimes has, and who knows when the system needs to be broken, to not just kill this guy after all the bullshit that he has put you through, to say no to the beast in that kind of a moment, I think is the real indicator of how far Vimes has come since we've met him. I think that has a lot to do with this ongoing discussion of believing in things that aren't real. And by real, I mean they're not tangible. You cannot hold justice in your hand. You cannot find a truth or freedom in, I think the way they put it in, in Hogfathers, like if you distill the universe down to particles, you won't find any of these things. You have to believe in them because believing in things and imposing them upon the world is the only way they can be real. And this book really does a wonderful job of using that idea to demonstrate growth, both in the micro when we talk about Vimes and the macro when we talk about the setting as a whole. Yeah. I think the most major theme of the book for me is the idea that there are some things that need to be done in the light. You can't hide things like truth or justice away in the dark. They won't grow there. And I think that's best set up in two instances, which is the night that Dolly's sisters burns, which is a watch house in a neighborhood where there was some civil unrest. Vimes takes all the local boys and puts them outside with no weapons and throws open the doors of the watch house and says, here we are. We are just like you. We are not here to hurt you or conspire against you. And they're the only watch house that's left alone. And then at the end, which I think is a really hugely impactful moment, where Vimes, even though he's basically in a situation where Carcer is actively threatening his life. He has, like, 18 knives Mm -hmm. on him. Even though Carcer's armed, even though Carcer is dangerous, even though Carcer is the worst kind of human being that there is, Vimes will not kill him in that moment. He arrests him instead, and that is, like, that kind of moment brings truth and justice into existence, like, the choice to do that. And to be so determined to do that, because to do anything else is to let a person like Carcer and and sort of the bad intangibles win. And, you know, that's such a satisfying close for this book. Okay, robots, that is it for today's show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of remedial read-along and us talking about Nightwatch, which I think is one of two books that are the tops of the tops of the Discworld series, and I'm so delighted that my mystical prophetic powers are still intact and everything came out okay. (laughs) And I did not overhype this book for Rachel, which would have crushed me, but it was all good. That would have crushed me. I was so excited and it lived up to it and I like I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again on vacation because I went through it in kind of a frenzy because I was like I need to know that everything's gonna be okay. (laughs) I was just very emotionally attached the whole time which I think fits in with your prophecy. (laughs) 
Yes, I had a feeling that Sam Vimes in particular would resonate uh, with you just instinctually, but maybe I'm missing my, you know, calling and uh, reader's advisory and book recommendations, but one day, maybe. One day. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, What else do we do in outros? Because I have forgotten how podcasting (laughs) works again. Um, Okay, I guess uh, one of the big housekeeping things we got to talk about is I will actually be gone for most of the month of May. We are recording this on the 5th. I am leaving the day after you hear this. I am leaving on Wednesday to be out of the country for quite some time until about Memorial Day or the day after. So we're Hannah's going to be doing a long-awaited, I'm sure, second installment of Hannah Yells About Comics, which I'm very excited to listen to upon my return to these United States of America. So you will get that treat while I am away. Um, and then we will resume our usual schedule when I come back and I'm no longer burdened by the world of academia. What else? Should I talk about our socials? I've forgotten how podcasting works, too. I believe we now talk about socials, if I recall. (laughs) Okay, so the easiest way to get in touch with us, because we tend to yell about things we care about most on this platform, is Twitter, at Remedial Studies. You can follow us on Instagram, at Remedial Studies. Promise y'all content will be forthcoming. Our Tumblr, where we cross-post our episodes, is remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. And you can also send us a good old-fashioned email at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, if you enjoy this show, which we hope you do, this isn't like a side hustle or anything, but we, you know, interaction is good. Um, if you like the show, please rate, review us on wherever you found us. iTunes is the big one, obviously. But um, wherever you found us, or if you just want to, like, tweet at us saying that you like uh, the sounds we make with our mouths and audacity, that would be stellar of you. Yeah, that would be great. But in the meantime, Rachel, you want to take us out? Yes. In the meantime, sweet listeners, you will not see us. We will not see you, but you will hear us next time. Bye, robots. Bye, robots.